We are going to be in Psalm 95 tonight, so if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to do a little bit of work. Obviously, you see a bunch of stuff on the board. It's going to help get us there. Um, and so we're going to, I'm doing my best to kind of stitch together the last couple of uh, times that we were in the Psalms in Book 3. Um, and so we've got to, we've got to work on stitching some of that together, but it's going to help us understand some of the bigger themes that are happening in Psalm 95. So let me pray for us. And then we will talk this out, and then we will get to Psalm 95, yeah? So, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the one who is supremely in control of our lives. My Lord, you are the one who is, um, as, uh, as Isaiah says, you are the one that declares the end from the beginning, and that there is nothing in your plan that will not come to pass. And so, Father, I thank you that we have the witness from our brother David and what we're going to be looking at in Psalm 95 today, as well as the witness of Moses and countless other uh, saints of the Old Testament and um, even saints in the New. God, I thank you that you have so composed Scripture to point to this one meta-narrative of your salvation being provided and accomplished um, on our behalf and for your glory. And God, I pray that we would catch, catch a glimpse of that even tonight as we are talking through Psalm 95. And so, Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit to help us understand that, and we pray that you will be honored in this conversation. And we ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so let's do this first chunk over here first. Um, I'm going to give you an incredibly quick Old Testament um, flyby of major historical things, right? In Genesis, you get the patriarchs. It ends with Israel, the nation, and about 72 people being in Egypt. And by the time Exodus opens, there's a whole lot more of them, somewhere around a million and a half to two million people in, uh, in Egypt who are now in slavery. Okay, So that's where we pick it up, Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, Moses, burning bush. He is called by God, and he is called to be the one to go and proclaim in front of this king, in front of Pharaoh, um, the name of the Lord, as well as uh, to lead God's people out of slavery. And then what we have in chapters basically 6 all the way through 11 is where you have um, the plagues are threatened and then executed all the way up until chapter 12 whenever they are celebrating the Passover. And then we actually see the 10th plague come where it's the death of the firstborn. And that Passover leads to them being freed, essentially, the, the 10th plague, them celebrating Passover, um, the Lord passing over the houses of Israel who had the blood on the door, and then they are freed. Chapter 14, they cross the Red Sea. They hit the sea, and they're like, well, we're dead now because we got nowhere to go. we got Egypt closing in on us. we got a sea in front of us, and there's nowhere else to go. And so the Lord puts a wall between Egypt and Israel, opens a way for them. They cross. Chapter 15, Moses sings a song. And then as soon as they get on the other side of singing that song in chapter 16, then everyone starts freaking out because we don't have anything to eat. And so what God does is he opens up the heavens and he brings down manna. He gives this manah, this bread. It's called what is it? That's what manah means. Like, what is this stuff? Why is it on the ground? It's manna. It's bread. God sustains them. They get a little further and now they're thirsty and they don't have any water. And so God provides water from a rock at a place called Meribah and Massah. That's going to be really important for us in chapter 95 or Psalm 95 tonight. So Meribah and Massah, it means quarreling is what that's after. They are fighting. They're arguing with God. They're arguing with Moses. Then basically what happens in Exodus, from Exodus 19 all the way through Numbers chapter 10, Exodus 19, the entirety of the book of Leviticus, and Numbers chapters 1 through 10, Israel is at one place for about a year and a half, two years. They're at Mount Sinai. They get these ten commandments on these two tablets of stone. Moses goes up and down the mountain like 15 times, something crazy like that. He keeps hearing from God. He brings a message down. He goes back up. He hears from God. He brings a message down. He hears from God, and he just does that over and over. They build the tabernacle. They get all this good stuff going. They're rolling. So, Numbers chapter 10, we are heading towards the promised land. So, in Numbers chapter 13, Moses says, hey, we're about to be on the cusp of the land there in uh, Kadesh Param is where they are at Paran. And so he says, hey, send about a dozen dudes into the land. Let's go check everything out. Let's figure out how we're going to get there. 
So chapter 13, the spies go out. Chapters 14, they come back, and 10 of them are like, oh, it's great. It is great, but we can't do it. And there's two who say, no, we can do it. And so what God does is he judges Israel and says, because you were unfaithful for the 40 days these dudes spent in the land, and they got a taste of what you had for 40 years, the rest of y'all are going to wander. And if you're 20 years or older, you're dead. Sorry, you're never going in the promised land. So God judges Israel. And that's where the book of Numbers really kicks off um, from there. That's what we normally think of Numbers is the bad news. Fast forward, you get to Numbers. They eventually get to the cusp of the land. Joshua takes them into the land. The judges, they have the land. Then First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, they are in the land. There's all these monarchies. It turns into this jacked up mess where the country is unified and then gets split right down the middle. Okay? In between all that is where that happens in the squiggle line. The next date that you need to remember is around 590 B.C., the Babylonians come knocking on the door in Jerusalem, and they knock that joker in, and they start taking everyone back to Babylon. It's called the Babylonian exile, right? They are there for about 70 years. So this happens in 2 Kings 24 and 25 with uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 590 B.C. with Babylon comes in. And then when the Persians are in charge, you can go read Ezra and Nehemiah, and they go back. Okay, here's the point. This action, the Babylonian exile, thematically and theologically matches the slavery in Egypt. So when they come back from Babylon, when they come back from exile, it's spoken of as a new exodus. Make sense? Hold that in your head. Cool? That's our timeline we got to understand, because we're dealing with Psalm 95 in this little squiggle mark. But in Psalm 95, we're referencing this stuff as well as this. And we've got to hold both of those because David's talking about it. Yeah? Okay. So let's talk about the Psalter real quick. Uh, book 2 ended in Psalm 72, and it's David's prayer for Solomon. It's a, a Psalm for Solomon. There's going to be this justice that's going to go out through the kingdom. And then Asaph, our boy, is in Psalm 73 going, yeah, but that's not actually what's going on. Like, it's all bad, right? And so what we see in Psalm 73 through 89, this is when we are picking up these hints and these predictions of this, of all these problems that are going to come. We're no longer talking about just David's life in books one and two. We're talking about the successors to David and how there's just decline. And so it is decidedly darker than books one and two. Even though books one and two have David crying out because of really bad situations, we've gone from one person's personal experience to the nations. And so what happens is in Psalm 89, Psalm 89 is a promise uh, or excuse me, is celebrating God's promise to David that there's forever going to be this king on the throne of Israel and it's going to be from the line of David. But then Psalm 89 starts lamenting, hey, there's going to be this exile. Are you tracking with that? It ends with this tone of like, but everything is going to get messed up. Yeah? That's how book three closes. Book four is Psalms 90 through 106, and we're in 95, which we'll talk about here in a second. But how book four opens up is actually a song of Moses. So we have Moses' first song that's over here after they cross the Red Sea in Exodus 15. He sings later in Exodus 32, 33 range, and then we see him singing this other song as well. And what happens in this psalm, this song in Psalm 90, is Moses is reminding God's people, hey, you do realize God's been at work for a long time. And how that fits in the context of book 3 and book 4 of the Psalter it is reminding us that even though we find ourselves in the middle of suffering in David's lineage, God has already been in action, in action well before David was here. And he will continue to be acting after David is gone, even in the middle of your suffering now. Does that make sense? And so what happens in Psalms 93 and then 95 through 99 is that it is this praise of God's kingship. Right? Does that make sense? So we're going to be celebrating the fact that God is king. And that's why Psalm 90 is, books, is, is in book 4 where Moses is talking about how God's been at work all this time. Okay? So, remember, 
This is all Moses until he dies in the land, essentially. Or, excuse me, dies on the outskirts of the land. David is in the squiggle marks talking about events that happened well before him and predicting things that are going to happen well after him. And that's the Babylonian exile. And that is foreshadowed all the way back in Psalm 89. Yeah? Cool? All right, so let's read Psalm 95. We'll flip the board, and then we'll talk about some key themes that show up in Psalm 95. Number one, does anybody have a superscription here? That this is a psalm according to somebody during this time or anything like that? Anonymous. Anonymous. I will tell you, it is not anonymous. In fact, I've already told you who wrote it at least two or three times. Who wrote Psalm 95 that you've heard me mention? David. Okay, Lee, so how is it that Sue's Bible says it's anonymous and none of us have a superscription that says it's of David, how can I confidently say that it's of David? You'll find out in a bit. So, here we go. Verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, and a great king above all gods. There's that Elohim, Paul, that plural, small g gods. He's greater and over all those cats. Verse 4. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed dry land. Verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then this last bit of verse 7 basically kicks it into a next section. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is a weird psalm because it starts by praising God and his kingship and then ends by like a big warning. And normally what you have is at the very end, there's like, so praise God, right? So it kind of resolves. Here, it's not there. And there's a reason for that. I think it's because we need to see the warning. That warning drives us to worship. Okay, so how are we going to attack Psalm 95? Is this way. We're going to look at three sections, verses 1 through 5, and this is to use Anthony's language from a couple Sunday mornings ago, is praising God's transcendence. He is the one who has created all the things, right? And then verses 6 and the first two or three portions of verse 7 is praising God's imminence, that he is near to us, right? If you look in verse 6, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord our Maker. He is our God. There's this real relational aspect of verse 6 that's very different than just praising God because he made all the mountains and the depths of the sea, right? And then what we have in verses, last bit of verse 7, all the way through the end of the, the psalm, is there is this warning against hardening your hearts. Okay, let's just pause right there on that last bit. When you hear the phrase... We can look there into the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When you hear that phrase, harden your hearts, where is the first place your mind goes? Who? Pharaoh. As it should. Remember on the other side of the board, we talked a lot about what happened in Exodus because this is leading to Exodus 17. He says, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah and Massah. These two places where they were like, hey, God, how about you just give us some water? You hadn't done anything for us. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about that bread. You hadn't done nothing for us, God. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about the crossing of the Red Sea. You ain't done nothing for us, God. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about bringing us out of slavery. You ain't done nothing for us, God, right? That's what hardening your heart looks like. So that phrase is meant to recall Egypt and Pharaoh and then Meribah and Massah reminds us of a very particular time where Israel did that. And then we'll see how that flows from basically the rest of that 
um, that chart that I drew for us earlier that leads to where David, we'll talk about that in a second, is now speaking generally to the people of God. Yeah? All right, so let's start at the very top. Verses 1 through 5. This is David praising God for his transcendence. How can I say this is David praising God for his transcendence? Everybody hold your place there in Psalm 95. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look in two different places in Hebrews. Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 primarily is where we're going to be. So the author of Hebrews, we do not know who he is, but he pulls from the Psalms in the Old Testament like a G. He does it all the time, and he knows the Old Testament well. And so he actually pulls from Psalm 95 two or three times in two chapters, in, Psalm, excuse me, in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. Let's pick it up there real quick in Hebrews chapter, four, or verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts at the rebellion of the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test. And you can read the rest there. What is he quoting? He's quoting from Psalm 95. He's quoting from the Septuagint. So if it seems a little bit different, that's where part of it's coming from. However, he's quoting from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. The warning aspect of Psalm 95. Skip ahead just a little bit. The conversation picks up there in verse 12 through um, 15. And then once again, he says, hey, by the way, remember, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Then let's look in chapter 4, verse... Uh, let's pick it up there in verse... Again, in this passage, he says, and he is speaking of God, resting from his work, they shall not enter my rest. And that's a quote from verse 11. I have surely said they're not going to enter my rest. Pick it up in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. This is just the story of numbers. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today. Saying through whom? Through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted. And in the words already quoted, and guess what he does? He quotes it again, <laughs> right? He clearly is picking up that Psalm 95, specifically verses 7 through 11, are critical for understanding there's some kind of pattern going on here. So the question for us is, what is that pattern? And what we were going to get is this creation, exodus, rest, new exile, which is the Babylonian exile, and then a new creation. We're going to talk about some of these key themes here in just a bit. All right? And we're going to see how God's redemptive work in exodus sets the stage for how God is always going to save. Whenever it comes to him rescuing and saving, he's going to do it like he did in exodus. Okay, well, what about whenever the nation splits? He'll do it like he did in Exodus. Okay, but what about whenever one of those nations gets sent into exile? He's going to send it just like he did in Exodus. There's going to be this new way in which he's going to save, but he's going to do it the same old way. He's going to overcome impossible odds, and he's going to make it so that they come about. Fast forward to our author in Hebrews, and he says, hey, what are you going to do with your sin? That's a whole new kind of slavery. How are we going to get saved from that? just like he did the Exodus. You see that? So let's talk about that. Psalm 95 by David, quoting from Hebrews 3 several times, quoting Psalm 95, and 4, 7, the author of Hebrews says specifically, hey, our brother David said this through the Holy Spirit. So is it unattributed? Yes, it is unattributed. Until we get Psalm 95 being quoted in the book of Hebrews, when the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, no, David wrote it. Yeah. Both of those things can be true. Cool? All right, let's look at verses 1 through 5. Real quick, back in Psalm 95. <clears throat> Psalm 95, let us come, sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, the tzur. We talked about that word last week, um, the rock. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, make a joyful noise. Why? Verse 3, 4, and 5 will tell us why. Lord, our God, is great. He is a great king above all Elohim, all these other little gods. And if you are in the ancient Near East, 
what do those, those little G gods, those other little gods that are spread around culturally, what kind of gods are they? Like, how do they exercise dominion? So if you're Baal, you are the god of fertility and produce. So, like, land and rain is a big deal, right? You think about Ra in Egypt is the sun god. Osiris, I think it's Osiris, is the moon. And so they all have all these little dominions, like this is the sea god, and that's the whatever fill-in-the-blank god, Elohim, little g god. And he's in charge of this little thing. What does David say in verses 1 through 5? Who's actually the god over all those little things? The one god, because he made all those things. I don't care what other little g gods we start attributing to these little things, they're false. They have no power. Look back in verse 3. The Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. So even supposing that he's not, but just for our argument, supposing those little g gods were real, do they then even have real power? No, because they are still subordinated to the great king over these gods, which is God, Yahweh, the Lord God, right? So even in that situation, they're not powerful. And how do we know that? Verse 4, in his hand, in God, the true God, in his hand are the depths of the sea and the heights of the mountains. Okay, hang on. But like I thought these other little G gods had like one domain. Yeah. And the Lord God has all of them. He's got them all at the same time. Yeah, you might be, you know, think about your Greek mythology, the God of love, Aphrodite, right? Or Artemis the goddess of the, of the hunt. Like, they're really like abstract things and like they stay in their lane. The Lord God of the Old Testament, he doesn't because it's all his. Everything is his lane, right? So he goes on to say, verse 5, the sea is his. Why is the sea God's? Because he made it. He gets to claim it because he made it. And his hands form the dry land. Okay, like, okay, but if we don't have the water, maybe there's a place where there could be a, a God on the dry land. No. I, I made that too. That one's mine too. Right? You see how this is working out? So David is saying, you need to celebrate and praise God's transcendence. He's over all these things. Over every bit of it. Okay? So he says that's what God is in this very grand scale. Let's look at verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Not just the maker. My maker. He's personal. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You see how this is like, it goes from a very broad, abstract thing to saying like, no, no, no. And that's our story. I've been hitting on over and over again this summer that the Psalms are there to teach us. They are liturgical. They are didactic. They teach us. And what David has done in the first two books of the Psalms is demonstrate how he fits into part of God's redemptive ark as part of the seed of the woman. And here he is inviting every one of us as like, no, 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 he's, he's our God too. So like we get to claim being under that transcendence because he is imminent. He is here with us. He is our God. Yeah? And as a result of that, that makes this warning make a whole lot more sense now, doesn't it? If these two things are true, you can't go anywhere else and find some other God who's got enough power to overrule anything, much less something beyond his little domain, and he's not even near to you if our God is this, well, then the warning is, well, what are you doing? What, why would you quarrel? Why would you harden your heart? Why would you do this? What happened to that generation that did that? They all died out in the dirt. Every one of them. Right? Every one of those in that generation, they died, including Aaron. Including Moses including Miriam, right? Throw out your favorite character from the book of Exodus outside of Caleb and Joshua, they die, right? 
That's what happens. So let's look at that real quick, and then we'll talk about these things here in just a moment. Verse 7, and I'll pick it up there in today. Today, if you hear his voice. Let's pause there real quick. Is that not a pretty bold statement for David to make? Today, if you hear his voice. Paul, today, if you hear God telling you don't wear a white shirt, and the person telling you not to wear the white shirt is me, what is David actually saying? Hey, today, if you hear God's voice, and you're hearing it because I'm telling you right now, <laughs> that's what's happening. David sees that what he is saying is him speaking for God. Now, I don't think we have the liberty to just speak on behalf of God, except for when God's already spoken, <laughs> right? This is what Jim Hamilton says about this. Uh, speaking about David, he says, this indicates that he speaks in this psalm that when he speaks, he expects his audience to hear from God. David seems to understand that God speaks through him and that he speaks for God and that where Scripture speaks, God speaks. And what the author of Hebrews is going to say is, hey, today, if you hear his voice, <clears throat> for those in the back who didn't hear, today, as I'm talking, right, don't harden your hearts. Because what happened to that generation that hardened their hearts? They don't enter his rest. Okay, let's drive on. Verse 7, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day of Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test. And they put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And if we're looking at just Psalm 95, what work might God have already done? You know, creating all the things and being with the people who inhabit those things. There's just two, right? Just two small things. But remember, we just flipped over the board where all that stuff up here was like how God had acted decisively to save his people. They had seen his work, and yet they hardened his heart, or their hearts. I, here's what I, this might be beneficial for us to hear whenever we talk about hardening your hearts. Whenever we talk about hardening your hearts, what that's doing is that is dulling your ability to hear from God, and what it does is it strengthens dis disbelief. It makes it more difficult for you to hear from God, and at the same time, it reinforces those things of like, yeah, but did really that happen? Is that really how this works? That's what hardening your heart looks like. Yeah, I know that Grandpa told the story of crossing the sea, but like, I'm out here in the middle of the wilderness. What's he done for me lately? Right? That's hardening your heart. And what David is saying in Psalm 95 is, for 40 years I loathed that generation and they all died because they hardened their hearts. Yeah? Paul. Little but, if. if, yep. Today, if you would. If you hear his voice, yeah. If. if you would hear his voice. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think that's consistent with what I'm saying here. Is that David is in fact speaking, and he is assuming that as he is speaking, God is the one who is speaking through him, and that you do have the ability to hear. You're hearing my voice. And I think that's like on a really practical level, but also like you should be hearing more than just my words, which is literally the reason why I pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to come help us understand these things every night, right? Um, yeah. Sue, did you have something you wanted to add or ask? My translation says, oh, that you would listen. Oh, that you would listen, yeah. To his voice today. Yeah. Because there's, there's a difference between hearing it and listening to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so let's take a quick sidetrack to talk about this. Um, I mentioned earlier when we talk about the hardness of heart more times than not, first thought in our head is who is that associated with? Pharaoh, right? And we always say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He does eventually, but you know who hardens Pharaoh's heart before God does? Pharaoh does, <laughs> right? Like God says, I'm going to, and then we see Pharaoh do it a couple of times, and then God especially steps in and makes sure it happens, right? So I mean, like, I think there is like an active component that we buy into and we play a part to play we have a part to play when it comes to hardening our hearts and so yes do we have free will yeah 
But if the God who is transcendent and creates all things and is near to us and imminent, I think he can overcome you not wanting to listen. Right? So it's possible. That's my point. It is possible to hear, even in the middle of sinfulness. Because if, that, if that's not true, then none of us stand any chance for salvation. Not a single one of us. Because we're all completely hosed. You are, in fact, totally depraved. Every part of who you are has been affected by sin. However, God in His grace, through the Holy Spirit, can still speak to you. Total depravity does not mean that you are the worst you will ever be. You could always get worse, right? The old adage is that even Hitler loved his mom, right? He could have not loved his mom and would have been even worse, right? You could be worse, but the point with total depravity is you are completely jacked up. Every aspect of who you are has been touched and affected by sin, including your ability to hear, your desire and wanting to hear has been affected. Yeah, but the God who is transcendent and imminent can in fact overcome those so that you are able to hear. Yeah, make sense? And so he says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts because in verse 11, the end result of this, you're not going to enter my rest. Period. End of the story. Now, here's the question. What does David, what does God mean? Because David is speaking for God here. You notice there's quotations there. Right? He's quoting what God said. They will not enter my rest. What rest is God talking about there that David is citing? Or for that matter, what rest is the author of Hebrews talking about? So, let's start at the beginning. What rest is God talking about? When you think of rest, what's one of the first references that should come to your mind? Heaven, okay. Somebody else? I think heaven is eventually where we land. So let's put that in the category on the far right. We'll work towards that, absolutely. Because I think that is where the author of Hebrews is getting. But we're laying the groundwork. What other rest might you think about? Resting in God's arms. Resting in God's arms, okay. And so I think there's like that security and that peace. The Sabbath. And what is the Sabbath a picture of? And why are we commanded the Sabbath? Because God rested. His transcendence. What does David cite as the evidence of God's transcendence? In verses 1 through 5. He made all things. And so this rest has to be connected to what it looks like to enjoy what God has created and patterned after how God operated after he created these things, okay? What then is the purpose of, I don't actually have it up here, but that rest in that aspect we talked about, um, heaven, which is eventually where we get this peace. What other rest is it that this generation didn't experience? The land. So again, you can see how that land is tied back to creation. The land is a huge deal. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, or the, the Abrahamic covenants, where God comes and tells Abraham and then tells him again, and he tells him later in chapter 17 when circumcision comes, right? He does all of that, and every time he mentions you're going to have, you're, you're have all these kids, all the nations are going to be blessed through you, and I'm going to give you land. To all your inheritance. That land is not the gift. That land is part of it, yes, they get that as a benefit, but what does that land represent? Rest. It represents rest. So ultimately, whenever those people in, excuse me, in Numbers, specifically in Numbers 12 through 14, whenever they have this rebellion and then they take the word over these 10 janky spies and they say, yeah, we can't do it. What does God say they can't do? Rest. You're not going to rest. What's the end result of not resting? Death. Death. And then you can see how we're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from eternal life. Right? We're not far from that. If to enter his rest, which is, I think, what Hebrews 3 and 4 is really about, that is this participation in salvation. Okay? Make sense?
Right. When you talk about the Exodus, when you talk about Moses, when you talk about um, God's mighty acts in Meribah and Massah, you naturally, so we've already kind of talked about creation a little bit, transcendence, we talked about the rest in the land. But now we've got to talk about, but their history still stands. They were in slavery. And so what does God do? He brings them out. By the way, you know that's what that word means, right? Um, Ex-odos or hodos, exodus. This is the word for way or road, and ek or ex is out. So the exodus just means the way out. That's literally all it means. Right? So the way out of what? Slavery. Slavery. Come now, right? Come now. Like, come on. You, you can see the pieces from here, right? That if we're going to enter this rest and this promise of salvation and the way out of what is their slavery, by the time we get here to Hebrews, what is that slavery to? It's not to Egypt. It's to sin. And frankly, that was their problem too. Because what did Adam and Eve not get to have? They didn't get to have the rest with God. And what happened to them? They got booted out of the place that was like the best land. Yeah? And they were constantly pursuing that. And so, let's stitch all of this together. So we talked about creation, we talked about the rest, we talked about the land and exodus, and every bit of this is just really, this is coming from the, the historical context of Meribah and Massah, right? And this is where David is stitching together this theme. Remember, this is all thematically and historically taking place right here. What is coming historically for the nation of Israel after the, the monarchies start falling apart? If you're in the northern kingdom, you get Assyria. That's bad. If you're in the southern kingdom about a century later, you get Babylon, maybe even worse. <laughs> right? It's not good. And when they are taken off into exile, what's another word for that exile? What were they in Babylon? They're, they're, they're slaves? Wow, does that sound familiar in the narrative of Israel's history that they are taken captive and that they cannot do anything on their own behalf? And then God is going to work through history to bring about a way out. And that's through the form of this cat named Darius and Cyrus, these Persian kings. Even to this day, which is a really weird, complex relationship, like uh, there, are, there are still Orthodox Jews who have like great admiration for Persians. Because they're the ones who liberated them from the Babylonians. Now, Iran and Israel, not necessarily one-for-one one correlation there, but historically, like, there was, there was good admiration. Especially, go read, go read Nehemiah. Go read Ezra. Right? And so, here's the point. If going to Babylon is a new exile, what can we then assume is going to follow that new exile? Is a new exodus. Okay, that's what brings us back to Psalm 90 as a theme where Moses is talking about God has been at work for us in the past. There's a future king, yes, but he is way on down the road. God's been at work for us there. And even before we get to that king and after him, God's going to be at work there. And now we start jamming together all these themes of creation and the land and the exodus and this new exile and this new exodus. Are you seeing how the breadcrumbs are being laid out of how we can see this major grand theme of salvation is really just a new exodus? It's the ultimate exodus for us in Christ that we are delivered from the power of sin and it takes us into rest with God forever. Yeah? So that's where we get to heaven. We have to. What is it that we get whenever we are imbued with the Holy Spirit, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians? What are, or 2 Corinthians. What are we now? The old has died. Behold, you are a, a new creation. As God's new creation, 
you will not experience exile. You will not. You will inherit this eternal rest. That's, I think, the point of Hebrews 3 and 4. Like That's the whole point of that message. Why do you think? Here's just a simple question. After I've run through these major themes, why did the author of Hebrews reach to Psalm 95 if he didn't see these themes already present there? That seems like a really weird leap for a guy in the New Testament to reach back to to describe our salvation through Jesus unless these are already well-understood themes and tropes that have already been trodden in Psalm 95. You, You see my argument there? The author of Hebrews knows this is what it means. It is a new way out. Yeah? And what is that way out in the book of Hebrews? Stack up whatever you like. Jesus is better. Better than Moses, better than angels, better than the law, better than the temple, better than sacrifices, better than that old Exodus. Because he has something brand new. And that thing that leads us, or that he leads us to, is rest. Yeah? So this is the point of all of this. As we look at Psalm 95, we cannot read it outside of the context of Hebrews 3 and 4. You can't. Because one, I've been saying this whole time, David's the one who wrote it. Well, if I didn't have this, Psalm, or, uh, Hebrews 4, 7, we wouldn't even know that, right? It is absolutely proper and, frankly, necessary at times to import meaning from the New Testament back into the Old Testament. However, you never do that until you do all the historical homework back in the Old Testament. What is the context that surrounds it? What are some of the themes that we see? What are some of the key words from that text? How is it used within the Old Testament? Does it make any promises that we see being fulfilled in the New Testament? And then, after all that's done, then we go to the New Testament, and what do we find? The author of Hebrews reaches all the way back to that text, to the historical context, to some key words, some major themes, some big promises, and he says, oh yeah, that's what we're talking about, it's salvation. You see how this works? This is how Bible study works between the Old Testament and the New. A lot of times we want to build a big wall between these two and say, yeah, unless Jesus said it specifically, like, it's just, that's one thing and this is another. And like, that's just the wrong way to look at it, yeah? So, that's my whole deal. Psalm 95. What is the point of Psalm 95? Whenever you look at all of this, Praise God and be faithful. Why? Because he's worth it. He made everything and he loves you. But why be faithful? (laughs) Because if you don't, you won't enter his rest. Period. End of the psalm. Yeah? Now, if I just told y'all at the very beginning of the night, hey, the whole point of this psalm is that you should praise God and be faithful, and then we said, okay, we're going to pray and leave it and go. We will have missed every bit of this, which is in this psalm. Yeah? All right. Comments, questions, observations? Question? Yes, ma'am. Uh, the cross-reference for 1 Corinthians 10. Yeah, we didn't even reference that. So what's going on in 1 Corinthians? By the way, CF, does anyone know what CF means whenever you see it like that? Refer to, close, it means compare. Confare, I think is what it is in Latin. Um, But it means to look at beside. But it means to compare, exactly what you're saying, essentially. Um, But compare that to 1 Corinthians 10. Let's turn there. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, what is Paul saying? This is what he says. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. What cloud is he talking about? Through the wilderness and which actually started on the other side of the Red Sea. 
and it carries on, right? And all pass through the sea. So you can see the order is the cloud, then the sea. And they were baptized into Moses. They followed Moses. They were as faithful as Moses was to that point. You can think of it that way. In the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. What spiritual food is he talking about? The manna. And then they all drank from the same spiritual drink. What's he talking about there? The rock. By the way, that, that's where I built that outline. It's actually from 1 Corinthians. For they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. <laughs> Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Why? Hey, let's go get 12 dudes, one from every tribe. Y'all go check out the land for 40 days. Come tell us, how, tell us what's up. Oh, we can't do it. Well, I loathe that generation is what Psalm 95 says. He was not pleased for they were overthrown. They were turned over in the wilderness. Now, these things took place. Why? What does verse 6 say? As a warning to you. When you read Israel's history, don't miss this. God let an entire generation be buried out in the dust because they were not faithful. Right? I mean, like that, don't blow past that. They were an example for us that we may not desire evil as well. Hey, God is great. He made everything. He loves you. So don't harden your hearts. How do we summarize that? Praise God and be faithful. What does Paul say? Guys, I'm telling you this because you don't have to look far to find an example of God absolutely obliterating an entire generation because of a lack of faith. And then he did what he had already planned on doing. If you ever, and, then he plan, and then he did exactly what he planned on doing with that generation. If you go look at the numbers, which by the way, that's the reason why the book of Numbers is called Numbers. There's a census at the beginning and a census towards the end. Why? I need to know how many guys we're going to have going into the conquest of the land. I need to know how big my army is. And then they mess that up and the whole bunch of them die. And then once they're all dead, hey, let's go take a count, make sure everybody's dead. They basically have the exact same numbers. Go look at the numbers. They're almost identical. So God just said, look, I've, I've got all day, guys. In fact, I've got 40 years. Let's just take that much time. I'll just let y'all die out. We'll try it again next time. And then Moses, he almost makes it in, and he messes up right at the goal line. He fumbles the bag, and he dies, right? And then Joshua gets to take everybody in. And then what Paul says is, guys, learn about what God does because he does not play when it comes to faithfulness. And I'm telling you all this so that you might not, he says, desire evil. But another way we might understand that is don't harden your heart. Don't get to where you won't listen to God and give in to your disbeliefs. Yeah? Did y'all think all that was in Psalm 95? There's probably more, and I'm just not wise enough to see it. Comments? Ed, yes, sir. A description of worship, yeah, bowing your knees, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, shout joyfully, mm -hmm. come with thanksgiving. He said, let and recognize the Lord is the great God. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then he also mentions that in his hands are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills, the sea, and the dry land. He's a creator. And then... And then in verse 6, he explicitly calls him the maker, the creator, yeah. And that's my whole point. Verses 1 through 7 are about praising God for these reasons. So how do we summarize the psalm? The first half is praise God. Or, in your words, worship God. Yeah. Why? It gives you reasons. His transcendence, he made all these things, and yet he's also near. But don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't harden your hearts. There's a whole generation out there in the dirt. You can go check on them. Right? Other comments or thoughts before we pray and mirror the tone of this song. Have I made this connections, or these connections clear? Like, does it sound like I'm a madman up here with red string going from like pins in a board, yeah? 
I'm telling you, sometimes it can feel that way. And whenever you start reading and you start getting some of those thoughts, it can feel kind of crazy until you read somebody else going, oh, no, I've seen those too. Like, okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. That's where the role of actual study and prayer comes in, yeah? All right, so I've got 10 more minutes. Other questions or comments? Yeah. I'm going to give you all some great Hebrew here. There are two words that get used in Genesis 1-1. Tohu and bohu. They sound like you're the greatest clown combo piling out of a circus car, right? Tohu and bohu, right? Tohu and bohu are shapeless and void without a form and without a function. Okay, that's how everything starts off. And in days one, two, and three, what does God make? Say again. Heavens and the earth. I'm get some water. I'm going to separate that junk. I'm going to put some dirt in there. And now I got dirt, I got some water, and I got some air. And I got everything else. That's days one, two, and three. Then what happens in days four, five, and six? That is a garbage five. That's a five, y'all. What happens in days four, five, and six? What does he make? And then what else? Animals, sun, moon, and stars in the heavens. Animals, fish, plants. He takes tohu, shapeless. Doesn't have a form. It's out there. It's nothing. And I make something. But the problem is that something's pretty cool. But there's nothing in it. And so what do I do on days four, five, and six? I start filling it with stuff that has a purpose. The sun, moon, and stars are there to mark seasons. These animals are showing God's glory, and eventually they try to be tryouts for Adam's azer, his indispensable other, and none of them can work. And eventually you get to Eve down here in six, right? But you can think of days one, two, and three is God addressing the shapeless, that there's no, uh, there's no shape to the thing, there's no form, and then days four, five, and six is God filling that stuff with other stuff that now has a purpose. Yeah? And then what does he do on day seven? So whenever you see that rest and what God's doing there in that rest is he is saying, this is the way it's supposed to work. There's a shape, there's a form, and there's a purpose. Adam and Eve, they had a shape and they had a purpose and then they messed it up kicked out. Egypt, Israel, they had a purpose. And because of sin and the presence of the world at that point, messes that up. And what are they in? They're in slavery. And so God leads a way out. They get right on the edge of going into God's rest. And what happens? They get booted out. You see how this pattern emerges over and over? Tohu and bohu. I'm telling you, you're never going to forget those two words, right? Shapeless and void without a form and without a purpose. Think of it that way. So how do we, as Christians today, how do we pray and mirror this tone? You tell me. I think Ed ought to have an answer for us. If he heard me. Ed, you got an answer for us? How can we as Christians today mirror the tone or the content of this psalm in our prayer? What might we do? You said it earlier. So having a perspective of pursuing right worship. If we have right worship, do it. If you don't have right worship, how about we pray and ask God to show us what right worship would look like. I think if we pray and ask God to show us what right worship looks like, we are, in fact, living out the content of Psalm 95. We're mirroring it in our prayer. Yeah? 
God, thank you for making the heavens and the earth. Thank you for filling in your tohu and bohu, right? I see what you've done. I see what you've made, right? Praise God for those things. What else? What's another way that we can praise God, or excuse me, uh, mirror the tone of Psalm 95 in our prayer? Okay. So praise and rejoice. What's the A and the Y? What's the A and the Y? A is ask. Ask. And Y My handwriting gets more atrocious as we go on. I apologize. So the acronym of pray is praise, rejoice, ask, and yield. Okay, so in this context, praise and rejoice, man, we ought to find something in the first seven verses to praise and rejoice God, or praise God for and rejoice in who he is, yeah? Should be easy. Just read the the first seven verses. Something might spring to mind. What might be one other thing that we can pray to help mirror the tone that is really drawn from verses 7 through 11? Why not just ask, God, do I have any hardness of heart anywhere? God, can you show me? And God, if I, if I don't feel like there's anything that you're showing me, like keep me from that. If we do that, we have faithfully brought to bear these major themes and understanding how big a deal that is and the content of Psalm 95 and faithfully turned that into prayer. That's, again, this is what this whole summer series has been about, is how to pray through the Psalms. Understand what the words mean, what the poetry is getting at, which includes the historical context, which includes the individual words, all this good jazz that we've run through tonight. It includes all that, but we have to bring it to bear as, okay, God, what do you want me to do with this? I'm going to praise you, and I want to try to be faithful. Help me be faithful. Show me where I'm not. And in the meantime, let me praise you the right way. That has been how we get to praying Psalm 95. Yeah? All right. Well, hey, that's on you. That's on you. The other 140 or so, because we're, we're in week 10 right now. we got two more weeks of this, um, and we're going to look at Psalm 139, which is I think is another one of David, I believe. Um, you know, my heart and my form, my inward parts, knit me together in my mother's womb. Um, there's a whole lot more that goes into that other than just anti-abortion rhetoric, right? A whole lot more that goes into that. Um, but we're going to look at that so that we can pray it well, yeah? So let me pray for us so that I don't run in here for 45 minutes extra. Gah. By the way, did I, y'all know that I ended up giving uh, Anthony's boys gift cards to Dairy Queen as an apology? Like, guys, I'm sorry I went that long that night. So that's how bad I felt. <laughs> I say all that to say y'all ain't getting cards tonight. Sorry. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we will be out of here, yeah? Father, I thank you for the words from our brother David. And even as we see the author of Hebrews echoing these uh, same words from verses 7 through 11 in Psalm 95, God, that today if we hear your voice, don't harden our hearts. God, what we see is that David believes that hearing your words spoken, even if it's from... These people in this room hearing my voice or people listening to this after the fact online, God, that we can hear from you because your word has been recorded and all I'm doing is talking about it. So, Father, I pray that as we have been talking about this, that we will have heard your voice through your spirit, through your word, and through other people in this room as you are building together this spiritual house that's made without human hands. God, I pray that you would be the one that receives the glory from this because you are the one who is worth it. You are transcendent. You're the one that holds the depths of the seas in one hand and the heights of the mountains in the other because they all belong to you. You are a great king. You are the king over all these other little G-gods who are not real and they're fake and they're phony, but you are genuine and you are real. And God, you are the one who makes yourself near to us. So Father, I praise you for that. Thank you for the fact (coughs) that you have sent your spirit to uh, abide in us and indwell us. 
God, that you have sent your son to make a way for that to happen. I thank you for that. And I pray that we would be mindful about how we can harden our hearts by becoming less sensitive to hearing from you. We can be dull of hearing and that we can give in to unbelief. God, I pray that you would help us from, keep us from that. I pray that you would help us to fight that at every turn. I ask that you would give us what we need, whether that's through community or your word or hearing the sermon or whatever it may be. God, you're the one that's in charge, not me. But God, that you would use whatever you see fit to bring about repentance in our lives, a recognition of us missing the mark with hardening our hearts, either to your word or to fellow image bearers around us. God, I pray that you would cause your light to shine within us and that as we see in Corinthians, that you would cause your light to shine in the darkness and that we would have, like Moses, unveiled faces and shining in your glory because of being exposed to your truth that comes through your spirit. So God, I pray you would help us do that. I thank you for our brother David and for the innumerable unnamed copyists and translators and men and, and women and organizations that you have used and superintended so that we have your word accurately preserved for us. God, I thank you for them, but chiefly we thank you for Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we leave tonight, I ask that we would be changed because of what we've heard tonight and see uh, a much grander view of how you operate in the world through history and in Scripture. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. All right. Psalm 139 next week, and then we have one more after that, and then we'll take a break, and then Equipping Institute begins on August 30th, yeah? Word.